Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 57. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $251 each, and everybody's favorite LTB coins are trading at $0.000248 US dollars. Mmm, Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky Maxwell by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thanks for being here with us again. New listeners, I hope you enjoy the show. And I do have to tell everyone that there will be some profanity in this show in the second half, so uh, no worries about the first half, but if you or your children do not want to hear profanity, you may wish to turn the show off right after the interview when the profanity will begin. A few things have upset me recently, and I find it very difficult to voice those things without using profanity. Uh, Maybe that's a deficit on my part, but that is what it is. So please keep that in mind moving forward. On today's show, I speak with Vadim Telyatnikov, the CEO of AlphaPoint. AlphaPoint is powerful software that allows you to launch an exchange in days, not months. AlphaPoint supports multiple languages, interfaces, and protocols. It also supports any and all fiat and cryptocurrencies. Throughout the interview, we talk about hedge funds and exchanges, how AlphaPoint is different from its competitors, and, of course, about the future of everyone's favorite currency, Bitcoin. All right, listeners, today I am pleased to welcome to the show the CEO of AlphaPoint, Vadim Telnyatnikov. Vadim, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thanks, John. Very happy to be here. Yes, sir. And tell me, you're in New York, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We're headquartered in New York. All right. Well, you know, we're getting a lot of snow and ice here in Nashville. What's your weather like there? Freezing. Uh, I think yesterday or two days ago, the wind chill was negative 17 degrees. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> wow. bundling up with lots of layers. <laughs> That's right. Just like mom taught us, right? Lots of layers. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was born in Moscow, Russia, so I'm kind of used to the cold. Uh, and believe it or not, I never was cold until we moved uh, to the U.S. I was nine just because we knew how to dress, right. it's always cold, and you kind of lose that, I feel like, when it's sometimes warm. Wow, wow. That's neat. You were born in Moscow. I actually have a nephew who was born in Russia. My sister and her husband adopted him, and he's now just fully American, and he talks just exactly like you, except his voice is not as deep because he's only 10 years old. That's great. <laughs> well, let's see here. Now, today we are going to talk about Alpha Point. First of all, if you could explain for the listeners, what is Alpha Point? Sure, happy to. We offer a white label platform that powers digital currency exchanges. We have 18 exchange clients uh, that we power in 15 different countries. Some examples are MixBT, that's focused on Latin America, uh, Bit, that's soon launching in the Caribbean, and the largest being Bitfinex, which is one of the largest exchanges in the world. Wow. So in an aggregate, very soon, we'll be processing over $300 million worth of trades between digital currency, primarily Bitcoin, and the U.S. dollar. So what is your biggest achievement to date? So I think uh, signing up Bitfinex as a partner, that's leveraging the platform, certainly one of them. Uh, we're super excited about working together with them and basically helping enable them for 
high frequency trading. I think both our views is that institutional players on Wall Street are going to get into digital currency in a big way relatively mm -hmm. soon. And they wanted to upgrade their platform to prepare for that. So we're certainly happy about that. We also recently raised a little bit under a million and a half in funding. So I think that's another milestone we were very excited about. Well, that's great. Now, when you say we, you're working with your brother, Igor, is that right? My brother, Igor, that's right. We also have great guys on the tech side that actually founded the company, uh, Joe Ventura, who is the CTO and founder. His background is building high-frequency trading applications and risk management systems for big banks, uh, Deutsche Bank being an example. And then the other technical co-founder is Jack Salen, and he has over 15 years of experience on the trading side, uh, building trading platforms trading systems and arbitrage strategies, uh, primarily on the commodities side, working with uh, exchanges such as the CME. Okay, now, Vadim, what is your background? How did you and your brother Igor get involved in the Bitcoin world to start with? Sure. So that's a long story, so I'll try to make it quick or as quick as I can. We're both entrepreneurs. One of my last startups was in the online advertising space where we created an exchange for large publishers to auction off their ads. So a large website that couldn't sell all their ads would work with us and we would have buyers, advertisers bid in real time for each ad and those that couldn't, we would predict the bid. And towards the end, uh, spent three years doing that, the company got acquired. We were trading nearly a billion ads a day. That's a lot of volume. Wow. Lots of volume. Then I left and started a hedge fund, a quant hedge fund called Admire Capital. Uh, we primarily focus on US equities, employing a number of quant strategies. But in August of 2013, we took notice of Bitcoin and started exploring it, started trading on a number of exchanges, developing our own strategy. So that's how I personally got into the space. Okay. We were very successful doing that, almost raised a fund to focus on uh, purely Bitcoin strategies. Around December of 2013, decided not to do it. But I personally fell in love uh, with the technology, with the industry, just really became passionate about what the opportunities or the future might hold and spent, uh, just decided this is what I want to do next. Uh, and we spent uh, about six months searching for the right opportunity. Uh, we're very close to starting a startup on their own and then ran into Joe and team at a conference in April. Uh, started talking to him about leveraging Apple Coins tech for what we're working on and through numerous conversations just decided to partner up. So it was a perfect fit. Okay, interesting. Now, from what I've read, you guys have a background in having owned a hedge fund. Is that right? That's right. Uh, that's part of the background. And that hedge fund is still operational. It just focuses purely on U.S. equities. There's been a lot of information in the press, obviously, in particular since 2008, about hedge funds and the problems with hedge funds and about the dangers of investing in hedge funds. So how could you help to quell the fears of my listeners when it comes to talking about some of the inherent dangers found in hedge funds. And of course, I know you guys are the ones uh, creating the software, but you know, we, we also know that uh, software can be written well, or it can be written poorly. It can be written uh, to game the system, or it can be written to run legitimate businesses in a legitimate way. Sure. Happy to. Uh, the way we see it on our end is we are purely a software company where we enable others to operate exchanges. 
right? So we built a very, very fast matching engine. We can process nearly a million trades a second. Uh, and we can help uh, launch new exchanges in typically under 20 days. So wow. the, what we're trying to focus on is helping um, exchange operators launch quickly in lots of places all over the world. And so they can enable people to have easy access to digital currency. Okay. So that's kind of our vision, right? So we don't trade ourselves. We just provide software to operators that have their clients be the traders. Okay, I see. Now, what is your feeling right now in 2015 about exchanges in the United States versus exchanges in other countries in terms of regulation? What's your overall feeling about it? How are regulations going here in the United States uh, when it comes to Bitcoin exchanges? I feel like it's going slow. I feel that regulation is important when you know you look at it from the standpoint of consumer protection. But I personally wish that uh, the process of kind of def uh, creating solid groundwork for regulation would move quicker. Um, and, and especially in the U.S., uh, not only is the process, but the fact that exchanges have to register in every single state mm -hmm. takes a long time. And it is somewhat uh, forcing people to focus on other areas, right? If you... Take note, you know, outside of the recent launch of uh, Coinbase, uh, which I think is great, you know, and kind of opening an exchange in the U.S., uh, all the large exchanges are in other regions. And the reason why that is is because it's so expensive and so time-consuming to be properly regulated in the U.S. Right, and this is something that we've been talking about. We've been saying to the regulators, look, if you regulate too hard here in the U.S., you're going to push some of that tech to other countries, right? You're going to push some of those opportunities to other countries. The opportunities are going to go, the money's going to flow to the countries where the regulations are not so stringent. Is that right? Yeah, and I think we already see that happening, right? Case in point, you know, Bitstamp, Bitfinex, uh, some of the exchanges in China, right? They're not in the United States. They're also not in place like UK, which is another huge market typically for uh, foreign exchange transactions. Right. Now, how is Coinbase having such an easy time about it? And by the way, you know, I wanted to go to Coinbase. I have a Coinbase account and I wanted to see their trading platform and just check it out. But I can't. They don't offer it in Tennessee. The Coinbase exchange is currently not available in every U.S. state. Do you see it eventually being available in every U.S. state? Yeah, I do. I think the main issue, uh, in my opinion, that they're having is just getting approvals for those licenses. And that's because some of the states are taking time to develop regulations specifically focused on digital currency, right? That's happening with a bit license in the U.S. Heard uh, New Jersey just had hearings on that topic, I believe, last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago, but very recently. Mm -hmm. um, and new, going back to New York, you know, as they're going through and developing the bit license, they're not offering any licenses uh, for digital currency. So unless you already have a money transmission license and already regulated by the state, uh, if you're a new entrant or a new Bitcoin company, you can't offer the service. Eventually, I definitely think it will happen uh, just because of how much effort and spent by those states to kind of go through the commenting period. But uh, we'll see when that actually will be. I see. Now, the states in the U.S. where it's not legal currently to have an exchange, what do you think is holding them back? Is it political? Is it by region? What's going on? What's your feel for that? It's really hard for me to comment. You know, I'm not a regulator, you know, so it's I can only speculate. Mm -hmm. My 
best guess is that they're just trying to be careful and create what they consider is kind of good uh, legislation. I also feel the other thing that's happening is what Bitcoin is, is hard to define, right? Is it a commodity? Is it a security? Is it a currency? Is it some new hybrid? So we need a new term for it. And because of that, there's a lot of agencies that feel that they might need to play a role in regulating. So, and because of that, it's taking extra time, right? The agencies, I feel like within themselves are trying to figure out who actually needs to regulate what. And that adds to the delays that we're seeing. Yeah, that's understandable. And, you know, we've heard a lot of the conversations revolve around this idea, the idea that Bitcoin is going to be regulated as per its use, right? So if it's being used as a currency, then it should be regulated as a currency. If it's being used as a commodity, traded as a commodity, it should be regulated differently than it is regulated as a currency, right? So I think that kind of confounds the whole thing in a lot of people's minds. And maybe that is part of what's slowing it down. They're afraid to get it wrong when it comes to trading versus is using the IRS's crappy definition of uh, Bitcoin as real property, right? Of course, I would like to see the IRS and the regulators say, hey, do whatever you want with Bitcoin, uh, have at it, uh, experiment with it, have fun, figure it out. Yeah, or at least for some period of time, right? Just give it time to breathe. Yeah. Give it time to develop. Give kind of entrepreneurs time just to figure out what to do with it instead of adding this huge layer of burden that and requirements that's necessary to comply with before even getting off the ground. I feel like that's the biggest danger. Somewhere in the early 1900s with the auto industry, mm -hmm. uh, where it was very prevalent in the UK, and then there are some laws passed, lobbied by the horse and buggy industry that basically, um, under the premise that cars are dangerous, right? They drive fast and they hit and can kill pedestrians. So. To solve that, uh, there was a law passed that said you need a flag runner to run a couple feet in front of the car mm -hmm. and alert people that a car is coming. Well, it kind of defeated the purpose of the car, right? That could get you from A to B faster. Uh, and, you know, and because of that, Ford was started in the U.S., right? Innovation just shifted elsewhere. So that's, I think, the biggest fear or concern for over-regulating something too early where you don't give it enough time to mature and develop and see what the potential is uh, and then call kind of the mind share and the brilliant ideas are just going to go to countries that uh, embrace that. Yeah, I think those red flag laws in Great Britain at the turn of the century with the coming of automobiles, I think that definitely hindered the automobile industry in Great Britain and maybe gave Ford and the U.S. Uh, an upper hand in that. I'm not sure to what extent that did, but I know that you're right. It did. I also think that regulators here, you know, they're looking at this thing, Bitcoin, as if it's a, a monster, you know, a Frankenstein. You know, Dr. Frankenstein is saying, look, I made this monster. I brought this thing from the dead and I want to release it into the world and, you know, just let it go out into the world and let's just see what happens. And the regulators are saying, well, we don't know what's going to happen. We're scared to death. We're afraid that it might go out and, you know, kill the banks, <laughs> kill all of these other industries that have a monopoly or a stronghold anyway on what people are allowed to do, such as remittances with Western Union and all that. So I think the regulators are really scared in a lot of ways, you know, whereas we are on the Bitcoin side, we're the Dr. Frankenstein saying, come on, just let it loose to see what it will do. But the regulators... I mean, 
I mean, I can really understand their position. I don't agree with their position a lot of times, but knowing the kind of people who are involved in regulating and, you know, how oftentimes they're captured anyway, right? If you've read anything by Patrick Byrne from his website, Deep Capture, a lot of these regulators, they're captured anyway. In other words, they're beholden to somebody else. They're not actually true regulators looking out for the good of the people. You know, unfortunately, they're not. I wish that they were, right? I feel that that kind of view from the regulators is improving. Uh, I feel like I, I would definitely more tend to agree with that this was the view in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, and at that point, nobody like the biggest one of the biggest fears for the industry is that Bitcoin is going to be made illegal. Right. Right. And right now, I don't think many people outside of maybe certain countries uh, would make the same statement. Right now, it's about. Uh, hopefully it's not overly regulated or regulations aren't too burdensome, but I don't think many people any longer feel that it's going to be made illegal. So that in itself is progress mm-hmm. uh, and positive progress. I think uh, we all wish that the progress would happen faster, but it's still going down towards a positive path. towards a good direction. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that regulators here in the U.S. and elsewhere realized the bigger picture. Wow. You know, while they know they can influence these other countries, you know, they know they can influence Syria. You know, they know if they need to, they can kill a Gaddafi. They can kill a Saddam Hussein. If that person steps out of line, it's not the same thing with Bitcoin, right? They cannot control every little country and they certainly cannot control the continent of Africa, i.e. the U.S. government the British government, the Israeli government, we cannot control what happens on the continent of Africa, right? So I think that they just kind of realized, hey, we cannot control this thing. It's out of our hands. So let's try to regulate what we can within our jurisdiction. I think people are starting to see the more and more the benefits and the potential and the good that technology can bring and not just focus around the negatives. Right. On our end, you know, our vision is that every single person anywhere in the world has easy access to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's to either buy or sell Bitcoin. That's what we're trying to enable by powering exchanges and letting local operators provide those kind of on ramps and off ramps. Right. And once you have access to Bitcoin, now you have like the potential is limitless. So you mentioned remittance and a lot of people are working on that. There's people working on all sorts of cool apps and trying to disrupt all sorts of kind of different pieces in the financial system. And I think that's awesome. That's going to be really powerful. And it's great to see more and more people start to realize and understand that. I agree. Now, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for Bitcoin to become mainstream? And how do you feel like your company, AlphaPoint, can help overcome some of those challenges? Sure. So I think that access is very important, right? Letting people easily access the digital currency right now, it's still relatively difficult. Uh, Coinbase has done a decent job of that, or it's just a good job in the US, but there's lots of countries all over the world. So what we're doing is helping enabling the exchanges in a local regions make it easy to do in whatever local jurisdiction they're operating in. Beyond that, as far as challenges, I think useful application, I would name as probably the biggest. Um, the companies that we tend to see in the space uh, growing and operating and successful right now are all mostly infrastructure businesses. Uh, the way I see the world of Bitcoin is kind of four pieces. Uh, you have the miners that 
create Bitcoin and verified transactions. Mm -hmm. Then you have the exchanges that provide kind of on-ramps and off-ramps to the ecosystem. Uh, the next segment are the wallets. So once you buy Bitcoin, you need to be able to store it and mm -hmm. spend it. And then finally, after that, you have the applications. Uh, the first application that I feel has gotten very good traction success is uh, merchant processing, mm -hmm. uh, because the value to the merchant is really, really simple and really, really clear. If you accept Bitcoin, you don't have to pay for the high credit card fees that you're used to, uh, and especially e-commerce. It's a very low margin business, so that extra profit goes to the bottom line and it's very significant. Yeah. So that's the reason so many merchants, I believe it's up to 80,000, maybe 90,000, are accepting digital currency. I think that's great, but that's not a reason for people to buy and use Bitcoin. That's the reason for people to accept it, which is important. But uh, it's those use cases that want you or your grandmother and anybody in the world, actually, I still feel like we're missing. I think there's a lot of smart entrepreneurs working on it that we will see more and more of those. But that's probably the biggest challenge. I think so. You know, as Andreas Antonopoulos often talks about here in the United States, and a lot of other people talk about it too, here in the United States, you know, we really don't need Bitcoin right now. I mean, I can go downtown and I can get a cup of coffee or I can get a sandwich. I can go down the street and do this or that. I can do pretty much everything I need to do, fill up my car with gas without using Bitcoin at all. In other words, I can do all of this with facility, right? Because I have a debit card. So, you know, obviously it's not going to catch on here in the same way that it is going to catch on in Kenya, for instance, where they already have M-Pesa in place using their dumb phones. But, you know, what I wonder is in the United States, what about the lower income people in the United States who are underbanked, who do not have a bank account, who do not have a debit or a credit card? I wonder if there's a way that Bitcoin might help, you know, give them access to banking, you know, to give them greater access to transferring value between people. It seems to me that that would be important for more of the poor people in the United States, and yet it doesn't seem like anybody's really talking about that. But let me ask you a question. Where do you see Bitcoin heading as a currency over the next, let's say, 10 years? So I agree with what you said around what Andreas talks about, that there's more use cases um, internationally than in the U.S. because we have uh, such easy access. So I feel like the adoption will be faster in the countries where there's more people underbanked, where you see the volatility of the local currency, you know, due to inflation be extremely high where people don't have faith in the local currency. So I, I feel like that's where it has the potential to add the most value, have mm -hmm. the greatest benefit. Maybe a person somewhere in Africa that has absolutely you no know, access to, let's say, digital music, right? Because you need a credit card and that needs to be tied to a bank account so they just can't purchase it, mm -hmm. right? There's absolutely no way. And all of a sudden, they have a Bitcoin and now, you know, going through merchandise like Bitcoin, they can have access to something like that. Yeah. So that's a use case. I think it's totally possible that you might see, and I don't know if this is two years or five years or 20 years, but at some point in the future, for a country that doesn't have a strong local currency to switch to a digital currency mm -hmm. right? and say, hey, this is interesting. Now, it might not be Bitcoin. Right? They might create their own local version of Bitcoin and maybe have their own kind of a 
monetary policy around how it's created and such. Uh, like we see, that, that, like we see in Ecuador. I'm not familiar with that one. The other thing that could happen and is that uh, people are residents in a country where there's crazy hyperinflation, uh, especially during a time of kind of high volatility where you see certain currencies just collapsing. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you see a lot of people shift to Bitcoin because they feel that's stable. And that kind of spurs its own ecosystem where people shift to it. Now they own it. Now they start accepting it. Um, I don't remember where this has happened. Um, So I won't name a country just on a chance of being wrong. But I feel that there's, there's been the case where there's been a country that a currency collapses where banking and financial system is frozen, mm-hmm. where um, the local businesses uh, created kind of IOUs within themselves just so commerce can happen. And it almost created through uh, basically their own unit of currency just uh, while the banking system was frozen. Cyprus is a good example. And, you know, Greece is in a lot of trouble, Portugal, Spain, Ireland. They're close to falling off these fiscal cliffs as we see Europe in a spiraling down in this free fall, which does not look good from any direction, really. But, you know, I I think your point is well taken that if a country has a currency that's not doing well or that's fallen apart, if they have hyperinflation, yeah, Bitcoin could do well there. Bitcoin could do really well in Argentina. The sad thing about Cyprus is that you had a guy come in there and basically bring Bitcoin to Cyprus, but then he basically conned everybody and everybody lost all of this money. And so if you go onto the streets of Cyprus and you ask anybody about Bitcoin, they're going to say scam. And it's a small enough country. It's an island, (laughs) you know. So anybody there now thinks that Bitcoin's a scam. And because of that, a lot of the other countries in the Mediterranean Greece, for instance, if you bring up to Greece right now, hey, this would be a perfect opportunity for you all to use Bitcoin as your currency or something like Bitcoin as your currency. But they're looking at Cyprus, their neighbor, and they're thinking, we're not going to get suckered into this Bitcoin thing. We see what happened in Cyprus. So that's kind of sad. I think that he was sent by somebody basically as a setup to make it look like Bitcoin's bad and to, to kind of sully the name of Bitcoin for that region. Whether he was or not, it certainly had that effect and that uh, fear factor now is in that region when it comes to bitcoin though not as much as the fear factor is there when it comes to their own currency and how difficult things are for people right now in greece in particular the whole world is looking at greece right now and it's a really a fascinating time so let me ask you a question what advice would you give entrepreneurs who are getting involved in the Bitcoin field right now? Because you guys have been entrepreneurs, you and your brother, right? And you've succeeded and you're succeeding with AlphaPoint. But for new folks starting, you know, starting in that are looking at you guys and looking up to you guys, what advice can you give these young guys? Sure. So I think the main thing I want to say is it's still really, really early. And what that means is there's still really tons of opportunity for people to build really amazing things that end up to be really amazing businesses. Yeah. So that's the kind of the first uh, point. And then the second one is just focus on where the big holes are and kind of bring value to somebody. Like I said, mentioned before, I feel like a lot of the current successful companies are infrastructure plays. And it's essential and it's necessary, but that leaves a lot of room for people to build great applications. And that's where I feel the true opportunity is. 
a lot of analogies are made to the internet, mm-hmm. right? And internet started just on protocols, right? Protocols are very kind of techy, hard, if not impossible for kind of the common person to understand. And then someone made email simple. Uh, and just the whole concept of email was really simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could call up your grandmother and say, hey, you know, you have those letters that you've been writing me and you put a stamp on it and it takes a week or maybe longer to get them to me and it takes another week for me to respond. Why don't you type it on the computer? I'll get it in a minute, respond to you by the end of the day. Yeah. It's just like a such a strong, clear, simple value proposition. And yeah. I feel like, Bitcoin is kind of starving for those types of applications. So that's what I think uh, new entrepreneurs entering the space should be focusing on. I like that. Just try to imagine what could be stacked on top of Bitcoin, right? We're very much uh, part of that infrastructure that I'm talking about. That's kind of essential, uh, an essential layer for everything else to operate. If you can't buy and sell Bitcoins, you can't build applications because it would not be possible to get a Bitcoin to use in your application. Right. So what we do is uh, enable the exchanges to provide that service, which is an infrastructure business. Mm-hmm. And I think that on top of that, people should build applications that are useful. Okay. So how is Alpha Point different from its competitors? Obviously, you guys have competitors out there that are doing the same thing. First, I don't know any other competitor, and I could be wrong, that has any strong traction in the space. Mentioned we have 18 customers, including one of the largest exchanges, is using our platform. Uh, I think we have a strong differentiation in the founders that come from the industry that know how to build institutional-based systems that Wall Street can connect to and use. And you know, if anything, when we talk to customers, their decision typically is either leverage our platform or build it in-house. Mm-hmm. And building exchange software is really hard. Uh, it can take a long time, uh, sometimes a year or more. And even once you built it, when you're scaling something is very, very difficult. You might be able to build a good enough system that you know supports a couple thousand users, but if your exchange becomes very, very successful, it might kind of buckle under the strain of all the volume that's being sent to it. Um, so that's where we come in. We help People launch exchanges quickly, uh, under 20 days, and let them focus their resources on building a great business and not on the technology. And then down the road, help them scale that up, right? Yeah, that's right. And the other important thing that I forgot to mention earlier, we the second piece that we provide is liquidity, which is really, really important. When an exchange launches and they get their first buyer, if they don't have a seller, they don't have a business. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we interconnect all the exchanges on our platform. So when an exchange launches in a country, let's say Mexico, and as a buyer, they can connect to a seller in another exchange that might be in Canada or Norway or anywhere in the world. So that's the second piece that we solve for the exchanges, and it's really, really important. I see. That's pretty substantial. That's acting as the middleman there, or the bridge between these different exchanges. Through the software, I mean, right? Yes, we through the interconnectivity, just purely through the software piece of what we offer. Do you all have an end goal that you're heading towards with AlphaPoint? Our vision is to allow anybody in the world easy access to digital currency. Okay. I think is will be an essential part of the growth of the industry.
Well, I think that's a good goal. I think that's something that's definitely needed right now. And I think that the exchanges, as they continue to grow in numbers, I can only imagine that your company is going to continue to grow as well as your software, you know, grows with it, right? Because as you build the software, as you have built the software over time, things change. It's not a static thing. It's kind of a living thing that can change as regulations change or as new developments come up from country to country that uh, need to be addressed. I guess that's what software does, right? Or needs to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, very hard work and kind of building new features. A lot of that is driven by our customers and the feedback we get. And we're just very, very excited about the future. Man, that's cool. Now, let me ask you another question here. What do you guys think about the Winklevoss twins <laughs> and what those guys are trying to do? I mean, I know they obviously own a lot of Bitcoin. They're kind of early believers, which I think was awesome. Um, and I'll ask the question again. Okay, so what about those Winklevoss twins? What the hell are those guys up to? <laughs> They're trying to get a regulated um, ETF in the market. Right, which if they're successful, my belief will drive a lot of volume and kind of a lot of interest into the space. So I think that piece is really, really positive. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's taking so long, but I think if they're successful doing that, that'll be positive for the industry. Yeah, um, I think so. It seems to be taking an awful long time, isn't it? I wonder what's going on with that. I'm confused whenever I read anything about it. It's like, what's well, coming soon? Well, hey, listen. Vadim, it has been great talking with you today, and it sounds to me like Alpha Point is off to a wonderful start. How old is the company now? We're about a year and a half old. About a year and a half old. And of course, in the Bitcoin world, that doesn't make you guys babies. You guys are really right there. I mean, a year and a half in the Bitcoin world is like, what, 10 years in any other tech field? Yeah, it's a long time, and you know, we're... we're very happy that we got into it early. I'll tell you what, man, I would love to have you back on the show at some point and to give us an update about Alpha Point and how well it's going. It sounds like you guys are doing great. Uh, listeners, you've been listening to Vadim Telnyatnikov, the CEO of Alpha Point. Alpha Point is software that is allowing Bitcoin and other digital currency exchanges worldwide to flourish. Vadim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Oh, hey, before you go, can you tell our listeners the best way that they can get in touch with you? Uh, sure. It's really easy. They can just email sales at alphapoint.com or myself, Vadim, V-A-D-I-M, at alphapoint.com. We'd be happy to talk to them. Okay, great. Vadim, hey, thank you so much. And uh, stay warm there in New York. I'll do the same here in Nashville, and we'll somehow make it through winter into the spring. Spring is just around the corner. It is. All right, man. Hey, take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Today's magic word is shysters. S-H-Y-S-T-E-R-S. As in the sentence, why in the hell are there so many shysters in the Bitcoin community? Well, I am in a thoroughly rotten mood right now, and I guess what got me in this foul mood was one of my listeners who goes by the name of Enemy of the State. This guy recently commented to episode 56 in the show notes on the Let's Talk Bitcoin page. He starts out in a rational way, and here's what he said. John, I love your show. I can also assure you that I'm not hopped up on testosterone or estrogen. If you could define fair slash slave wage, that would be great. Thanks.
So I did respond and I wrote, Certainly, slave wages are what corporations currently pay to migrant workers who pick fruit in many parts of the U.S. Many of these people are housed in poorly insulated and poorly furnished trailers, and they are often packed in. Sometimes their contracts and visas allow their employers to pay them far below that state's minimum wage. They have options of buying food at specific stores at prices higher than what locals pay for the same products. Slavery is real on planet Earth. Children all over the world are still abused and forced to work for, get this, just enough food to keep them working. Getting paid in only food is also a slave wage. I pay Frankie a low Bitcoin amount for transcribing my show each week, but I also advertise his service on my show so we feel a balance is there and thus a win-win. This is a fair wage even though it's a low dollar amount. How does one put a price on an ongoing podcast that has already reached over a quarter of a million listeners worldwide? Moreover, each episode will live on in perpetuity, if you will, on YouTube, SoundCloud, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, and of course on my website, Bitcoins and Gravy. I go on to further define slave wage. A slave wage is what a big city pimp pays his prostitutes. Usually they earn food and possibly drugs and earning a slave wage. Some people would consider minimum wage to be a slave wage. Working in the hot sun in Dallas as a roofer and getting paid $7.50 an hour might look like a slave wage if the guy working has a stay-at-home wife and three kids. But on the other hand, maybe one of his co-workers is single and lives in a small, inexpensive apartment, maybe with roommates or his girlfriend who waits tables and brings in an equal amount. Then that $7.50 an hour can usually go a long way. Frugality is a factor. Whether or not they decide to have children is also a factor. No one forces people to have children. But for some reason, the poorest people seem to have a lot of children. Why? The reasons are many, and I have always found it hard to blame those who are born with a deficit in education, money, diet, or love. Life is hard for all of us, but it's a hell of a lot harder for many of these people considering how they start out. Take many of us and put us in a housing project in the inner city as an infant and see how well we fare and how far we get in life. Many would do well. But in fact, most will not rise up much beyond what they see around them. Psychologists and sociologists know this to be a fact. End of quote. And then at the end, I use a little humor uh, to define fair wage uh, for enemy of the state. And I write, fair wage? What I make as the host of Bitcoins and Gravy, about $50 a week minus expenses and the joy of interviewing interesting people from all over the world. Enemy of the State responds, John, you're a gentleman, but you have absolutely no idea what the fuck you're talking about when it comes to economics. Thanks for taking the time to respond to my comments. <laughs> then right after that, one of my favorite listeners, Did Yours, responds with, I don't agree with everything John Barrett says, but at least be civil when you disagree. It also helps to pick apart the argument and supply counter-arguments. Simply telling someone they know nothing isn't constructive at all. So please elaborate why you disagree, and there may be a useful discussion here. Oh, wow, I agree. Hey, thank you once again, did yours, and I could not agree with you more.
enemy of the state did not have the balls to come back with a counter-argument or statement of any kind. And since he seems to have a solid knowledge of economics, <clears throat> whatever the hell that might mean, it would have been nice if he could have had the balls to share some of his vast knowledge with the rest of us. Hey folks, I'm definitely not an economist. I'm not a programmer or a coder or a software designer or any of that. I'm just your average Bitcoin enthusiast <clears throat> who loves talking about Bitcoin and sharing what I learned with you the listener. Seriously, <laughs> I started I started out this podcast because I love Bitcoin and its potential to bring positive change to the world. And if any of you have ever taken a close listen to my song, Ode to Satoshi, you'll understand that it's not a tongue-in-cheek song aimed at making people laugh, nor was it written for children as a nursery rhyme. What do you think I mean when I wrote, from the ghettos of Calcutta to the halls of parliament? Well, I'll tell you, that line is about imperialism and a direct reference to the British immoral occupation of India that was, by the way, eventually dismantled, beginning with the peaceful opposition movement of a great man that we refer to as Gandhi. Enemy of the state, if you are listening, please understand that I am what I am, and it's not easy at times to interview so many intelligent people in the tech world and in the world of big business, finance, and economics. I do agree with Nicholas Nassim Taleb in his assessment of economists when he pokes fun at them. I think more than anything, what he's really saying is that he has seen so many people in academia striving to get tenure, striving to get funding and get published, that he finds it hard to take them seriously anymore. When when one economist makes a prediction about the future and then the opposite happens, what are we laymen to think? When an economist rises up to the level of a Paul Krugman, for example, and has the attention of media outlets worldwide and then stands there and makes foolish statements such as Krugman's statement that, quote, Bitcoin is evil, then what are the non-economists in the world supposed to think? Right? Moreover, we hear learned men having heated debates about Keynesian versus Austrian economics, and yet, when all is said and done, people are still underpaid, overworked, overtaxed, malnourished, depressed, and dying all over the world, while damn near every one of these economic geniuses has a nice house, quadruple airbags in his car to protect him from any driving mishap, a refrigerator packed with goodies, and 50,000 options for entertainment at their fingertips. From the average person's perspective, you economists aren't getting much done. To we the people, you're no more trustworthy or relevant even to our immediate lives than your average career politician. So my final message to my listener, enemy of the state, is this. If you can't define slave wages, and if you can't have a man-to-man -man discussion with me in a civil manner, and if you can't refrain from cursing me and treating me like a piece of shit, then you can fuck you punk. I work too hard doing this podcast to take that kind of shit from you. I've got two jobs, a mortgage to pay, massive bills I pay alone, and no time for punks like you to ruin my day. I guess my skin is too thin, folks, but I put in about 10 hours each week to produce this podcast, and I make less than $50 per week doing it. So since you're such an economics genius, you do the math, enemy of the state, and tell me if it's worth my putting up with shit from a dweeby little bitch like you. And my second rant of the day, 
The following is my angry response to an article I read this past Thursday on the BitcoinMagazine.com site, which, by the way, is one of my very favorite sites for information about Bitcoin. The article was written by Christy Harkin and was published on February 25, 2015. It's a short but well-written article entitled, After Chaotic First Day, Bitcoin Foundation Reboots Runoff Election. As I mentioned, I generally try to refrain from using profanity, but... In in this instance, I have to say, when it comes to the Bitcoin Foundation election debacle, I have to say this. You've got to be fucking kidding me! Are you telling me, with all of the amazing tech talent in the Bitcoin community, and supposedly in the Bitcoin Foundation, that a basic election, a tallying of votes, a counting of choices, could not be successfully carried out? This is not gross incompetence, and I refuse to believe that. I'm going to agree with candidate Olivier Janssens and applaud his accusation that Patrick Merck, the director of the Bitcoin Foundation, did in fact commit, and I quote Janssens, a serious breach and a clear attempt at throwing a wrench in the machine, end of quote, and, quote, totally and purposefully manipulating the voting process, end of quote. I mean, seriously, folks, what the hell is going on? This is like Diebold voting machines fixing a federal election, which led to me having to see the snarling little man-child face of W. Bush for eight fucking years and the death of countless human beings all over the planet, right? An election gone bad, and we all sit back and let this shit happen over and over again. So now what, when it comes to the Bitcoin Foundation, we're supposed to accept the fact that we have this half-man, half-wally cleaver, slick-talking bullshit artist attorney as the head of the Bitcoin Foundation? What a fucking joke. Now that chubby little chump is trying to pretend like this major fuck-up has something to do with anti-fragility, it's going to be good for us in the long run and help us refine the system. Bullshit! How the hell did we get here is what I want to know. A fucking attorney at the head of the Bitcoin Foundation? You know, honest to God, half the shyster politicians in D.C. and around the globe started out in law school and then ended up making laws, telling people what to do, and generally being yes-men for one evil empire or another. Is there a force of evil in the world that these doughy little men are somehow tapping into? The last thing we need at the helm of the Bitcoin Foundation ship is a fascist with a god complex and no moral compass whatsoever. Hey, Merck, you may have gone the way of Darth Vader, but I'm telling you, one of these days, some Luke Skywalker is going to come around and shove his lightsaber straight up your attorney's bum if you don't get the hell out of the way of progress. You know, honestly, I'm starting to think that Cody Wilson might just be right. Merc, your time is going to come. It won't happen today, it won't happen tomorrow, and it won't happen when you least expect it. But one day, when you're old and shriveled and dying in a wheelchair in a retirement home somewhere out west where the air is dry, whoosh, and tumbleweeds tumble across the plains. Someone will come up behind you and slip a hit of LSD into your meds. Then that someone will wheel you over to the massive wall screen and turn the station to the Jerry Falwell 3 show. The images and sounds will rush to the core of what's left of your brain and you'll be subjected to the wrath of the mighty God Almighty. Your ears will begin to burn as if hot ice picks were thrusting in. Your piss bag will bubble up and overflow with the feeling of scalding lava running down your scrotumulus sack and on down between your legs. Your teeth will chatter out of your mouth and onto the floor where you will see them do a little can-can dance away from you. 
your bird-like hands will grip the arms of the wheelchair in terror and lock on in a death grip as your mind explodes in a kaleidoscopic horror show of multicolored madness. Your eyes will melt out of their sockets and hang from your brittle skull as if on cartoon springs. And your heart... Well, never mind. There is no heart in that carcass, and there never was. <laughs> we get a sip of tea here. And... <sighs> and my final rant of the day whew, is in response to a tweet by Brian Armstrong, the CEO and co-founder of Coinbase, everyone's favorite white-collar, silk-tie, Bitcoin wallet, and now exchange. And Brian tweeted, Ripple, Stellar, and altcoins are all a distraction. Bitcoin is way too far ahead. We should be focused on Bitcoin and sidechains. <laughs> I do have a lot of other voices besides just that one voice. I think that was the same voice I used for um, Enemy of the State, you know, just the, the voice of a... Anyway, first of all, Brian, your statement, quote, we should be focused is ridiculous. Here at the dawn of the age of cryptocurrencies, we are millions of people involved in tens of thousands of different projects with tens of thousands of different focuses. I sincerely hope that you would not actually want to pull everyone everywhere off their projects to accommodate what you have put your heart and soul into and what you feel is important. This seems not only impractical, but impossible as well. It also seems a bit selfish and immature if you ask me. Now, please allow me to address your false assertions. Bri Bri, I'll explain it to you this way. Ripple is a ship and Bitcoin is a train. There is no way too far ahead because you see, son, these two very different protocols are working in different dimensions, on different planes. They have different end goals, use cases and users, etc., etc. With all due respect, Mr. Brian Armstrong, your comparison is sophomoric at best. And what about altcoins? Young man moving forward and past some static fantasy that lays comatose in the back alleys of your mind ghetto, there will be many altcoins in the future, unless, of course, the planet loses power and we find ourselves back to Stone Age living. Now, personally, I've watched almost all the old Flintstones episodes, so I imagine that I would actually fare pretty well in a Stone Age environment. And believe it or not, I'd be perfectly fine watching television by candlelight if I had to. But with altcoins, it's not just about the unique utility and functionality and innovation that we see all around us every day. It's also about thousands of kids sitting around in their yellowing underwear, smoking weed and running to the kitchen every hour or so to nuke another hot pocket and get another glass of milk. These kids refer to themselves as traders. They love barbecue coin. They get erections en masse when Litecoin or Namecoin moves up or down a fraction of a nickel. And some of these traders earn money all day long, buying and selling, selling and buying, usually just enough to buy another eighth ounce of the dank. And guess what? They're addicted to the game. Get it? They don't ever want to stop. They bring in new recruits all the time from school or from the mall, and their numbers are growing steadily because there is money to be made doing this. Listen, Brian, Fruit of the Loom would go out of business if altcoins ceased to exist. Lunchables, Egos, you know, as in Lego My Ego, Captain Crunch, Red Bull, and Slim Jims. All of these uniquely American innovations would also cease to exist if altcoins somehow magically disappeared before every young trader's eyes. Bri, Bri, the world of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ripple, Ethereum, Stellar, 
Hmm. Dark coin, light coin, etc. None of this is about making sense, and it's certainly not about common sense. It's not about predictable variables that computer scientists can check against their atomic clocks. And it's not about Keynesian or Austrian economics. It's not about hierarchical structures like centralized corporations dictating what we can and cannot do. And it's certainly not about ones and zeros anymore. It's all about fear and greed and passion and love and lightness and despair and humor and tragedy and hope and a belief that things might somehow get better for humanity this time around if we can just climb aboard y'all this train is bound for glory and there's plenty of room for all Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be He gave us all a protocol this world had never seen Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh Lord, before I have to go.
And I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Vadim Telyatnikov, the CEO of AlphaPoint. AlphaPoint is powerful software that allows you to launch an exchange in days, not months. Exciting stuff, folks. And you can find more information about today's guest in the show notes at letstalkbitcoin.com, on SoundCloud, and on my website, bitcoinsandgravy.com. And hear ye, hear ye. Coming soon, you'll be able to find full transcripts of each episode of Bitcoins and Gravy in the transcript section of bitcoinsandgravy.com. Professional transcriptions provided by Frankie, one of our fans, who can be found at diaryofafreelancetranscriptionist.com. More on this in a few weeks, and thanks for your patience, friends. It is coming soon. Look for me at the Texas Bitcoin Conference in Austin, Texas next month, and let's sit and have a beer together. Even if your name is Enemy of the State, despite my ranting and profane commentary, I will still sit and have a beer with you, sir, if you would like. Or if you would prefer, we can leg wrestle to see who has the greatest reserve of testosterone. If you've enjoyed the show today, please take a minute to leave a comment on Let's Talk Bitcoin in the comments section right there below the show notes. You can also leave a message on SoundCloud or do the old-fashioned thing and send me an email. And of course, Bitcoin and Litecoin tips are always appreciated by the hardworking writers and podcasters in the Bitcoin world. Many of us work as volunteers and sure could use those tips. Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host. John Barrett with my trusty companion Maxwell by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other out there now, and remember the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Check, check. Is this thing on? Hey, I'm doing a voice memo to you. John Barrett. Uh, my name is Christian Burns, and I uh, wanted to give you some feedback about your show. I love it. I've loved it since the beginning, and um, anyway, I've never sent you any messages. But last week, I was listening, and all of a sudden, you were making a comment. Hope you can hear me over the noise. Um, I'm driving down the freeway in uh, Seattle, Washington. Actually, I'm halfway between Seattle and Canada at this point. So, I, uh, you were talking on the show, and you talk about the Texas Bitcoin Conference, which I loved your interviews from last year about Texas Bitcoin Conference. I love those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I need to go to that thing. Like, it's far away from me for me to get there. I don't, like, have money to go to stuff like that. It's not part of what, what I do. And all of a sudden it hit me. I've got, what, could I do this? What's the number? And, and so I brought me down a, a road of looking it up. And I was like, okay. And I called, you know, I talked to my wife and I said, I got this crazy idea. And, um, you know, we've been into excited about Bitcoin for over a year. And so, um, and, you know, it's been kind of depressing at points. But um, we've been really excited about it. And anyway, we still believe. And we still believe. And anyway, all that to say that I, I just want to thank you for talking about the Texas Bitcoin Conference. I knew it was happening, and then I realized I needed to go. So, uh, one, I'm going. I got my tickets, my airfare. I booked some uh, a place to stay. But I appreciate your show. And... Um, 
The other thing I really appreciate, John Barrett, is Ode to Satoshi. I, uh, I tell you, I, I drive a lot for my job. And whenever I hear Ode to Satoshi, I sing it in the, in the van at the top of my lungs. And uh, it helps me to dream about the future. Anyway, I uh, want you to know that I will see you at the conference. I'll find you. Well, it's not going to be that massive that can't find you. You're, you're going to be the guy with the guitar playing Ode to Satoshi. Um, and then that is uh, it. So I just finished your last episode. And um, anyway, that's I'm rambling now. But I just want to say thank you and uh, dream of a greater future, freedom for our kids. Well, my kids. You, you dream of a future of freedom for my kids too, which is awesome. You want my kids to live in a better world too. So that's cool. We have that in common. Anyway, I'll uh, chat with you later. Whoa, 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 whoa